So we've been talking about how Christ possesses us, and one of the things we've said is that uh, perhaps the Holy Spirit possesses a person the same way that a demon might possess a person, only with similar yet opposite results. We are so opposed to this in the Western world that we choose instead to live dispossessed lives, which have a form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. So what would it be like for us if we would yield ourselves completely and let the Holy Spirit take full possession of us and make all of those things come alive? The way into this life, we said last week, was, uh, was to realize first that, what, that this is what God intends for us. You know, when I took hold of Jesus, it's not the same reason that he took hold of me. Paul says, I strive to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. So ask yourself, not why did you come to Christ, but why did he come to you? What did he have in mind when he took hold of you? And maybe that's bigger than what you had in mind when you took hold of him. The way into this life, we said, is not through a transaction, simply invite Christ to do this. It is through the habit of love and obedience. Whatever makes me better at love and obedience will make it more likely that the Holy Spirit will take full possession of me. Because one more time, one more time, This is not simply about an invitation, Lord Jesus, come into my heart. This is about becoming the kind of heart where he is comfortable. Jesus said in John 14, verse 23, if you love me, you will obey me. And then the Father and I, listen to the language, will come to him and make our home with him. And that word home or dwell means to settle down, to move in, to get comfortable. So it's not simply about saying, do I want this to happen? Yes, let me ask Jesus to do this. This is more about becoming over time the kind of home where when he lives there, he's comfortable there. Does that make sense? Yes, it does, since some of you are still tracking. Yes, does that make sense? So I'm raising the question today, how does this happen? Because, you know, as a kid, I was always trying to figure out how does Jesus, like, move in without me moving out? And since I grew up in the holiness tradition, I heard all these sermons about dying to self And while those are great sermons, the unintended consequence of that is that it has like a win-lose proposition. It's like somebody's got to die in order for him to live, okay? Somebody has to diminish in power in order for somebody else to have more power. So that sounds to me like a win-lose proposition. So I was asking myself as a kid, well, how exactly does he take control of me uh, while I still remain me? How does he take over my faculties and yet hold me accountable for my faculties? 
How does he get my personality without me losing my personality? It all has to do with how we give or how we think of giving. When we were kids, you and I, our parents taught us to, to, to share. Share is one form of giving, and most kids are resistant to it. So when you have something and your brother or sister doesn't have something, then your parents step in like a socialist and ask for you to give half of what you have to your brother or sister. This is ridiculous. Especially if you've worked for it or if it's pure luck. You're thinking to yourself, this isn't fair. They didn't work for it. They shouldn't have to get half of the stuff that I have. You should have to work for this stuff. You see, this doesn't go away when you're an adult. <laughs> Some of you are still trying to decide who to vote for on the basis of this childish version of sharing. It's, it's a win-lose proposition. So when you give your stuff away out of fairness, which it isn't fair at all, you notice that you have less. So you start saying to your parents, well, wait a minute, if this is about fair, how about working for the stuff that I got? When's my sister going to do that? And then they change the game on you and say, well, it's really, it's about generosity. It's about learning to share and be that kind of a, look, and you're thinking, if this were about generosity, then why would you not insist that my brother or sister be as generous as I am? So when I give them half of my stuff, are you going to make them give half of that half back? And if I end up with three-fourths, oh well, we've both learned generosity. That's what this is about. But you say nothing or you'll get paddled and sooner or later, this idea of what it means to give has got to change. It has got to change or you'll get stuck there for the rest of your life. Some of us are still stuck there. We go into marriages like this. Only we're like 40 or 50 now. As you mature, you realize that some things actually increase when you give them away. Love is this way. The more love that I give to another person, the more love I actually have. Power is this way. As a leader or a shepherd, when I give power away, I actually become more powerful because the only thing more powerful than a king is a kingmaker. Ideas are this way. When I subject my ideas to other people, instead of hold on to them myself in the name of intellectual capital, I find that ideas improve. They get bigger and sharper and they help even more people. So they actually reproduce as I self-image this way. The less I worry about myself and the more I worry about you, the better I feel about myself. There are many things this way. And so we have to change is what I'm saying. The way that we think about giving, not as something to be shared. So when I give it to you, I now have less, but as something to be invested in someone else who then multiplies it and I get more in return. But something about this still gnaws at me. 
Because if I invest into someone else with the idea that I will get more in return, the idea is still flawed. In my first church, we had a guy that brought us a sound system. He didn't have a lot of money, but one day, he was a Pentecostal, so he actually believed all these verses in the Bible. He went out to the store and got a sound system, and he brought it to us, and he, uh, he said, hey, I got a sound system in the car, and I know the church needs this sound system. And I said, John, you, no, you can't do this. You and your wife do not have that kind of money, and this, this you know, this, and man, we needed one, man, bad. And he said, no, 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 Pastor Steve. Jesus said that anyone who gives up a house or a property or a brother or sister will receive a hundred times in this age and in the age to come. He said, man, I'm going to get it back, pressed down, shaken together. Man, I'm telling you, it's coming. And I thought to myself as a young preacher, you know, I think this guy is screwing this verse up big time, but we really need this sound system. And so I'm just going to let him be a heretic for a while till I can get that sound system in here. And so I helped him unload the sound system while we put it up in the thing. We set it all up in the front of the sanctuary. And when he left, I said, dear Lord, I'm pretty sure he's jacked up that verse, but that is between you and him. Thank you for the sound system. But it's this idea of investing. Do you hear it? It's built in that kind of a thing. No, no, don't worry about it, man, because I'm actually going to invest in the church or in the kingdom of God, and I'm going to get back more than I invested. And, you know, even if that works, something tells me, ah, this doesn't feel right to me. It feels disingenuous. So another system yet is necessary. How do we give ourselves to someone and yet, listen, listen closely, not lose anything of ourselves? No, how do we completely divest ourselves of ourselves and yet at the same time possess ourselves with other people who possess their selves while they are giving their full selves? It sounds like a contradiction. And I start thinking about musical notes. Think of yourself not as an object to be given away. Think of yourself as a note to be played next to someone else who is playing another note. And when those notes come together, they complement each other in such a beautiful way that a chord a musical chord is formed. So that each person, while they hold on to the integrity of their note, finds as much pleasure in the other person's note as the other person finds in the one. What if marriages were like this. What if the Trinity is like this? We're going to do something in a minute, and I want you to play a part. We're going to sing. Are you ready? I know. 
It's hard for some of you. Remember, it's not us who sings. It's the church that sings, and we sing with the church. So even if you can't sing, try to sing with me a minute. And while you sing, I would love it, love it, if you would sing parts, if you know parts. And while you sing parts, listen while you sing. Are you ready? Praise God from whom all blessings Fill it up. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Oh, it's beautiful. Praise Him above me and below. Listen. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ah, sing the Amen. beautiful, ain't it? Is that not great? Yes? Come on, church. We should go on the road tour, cut CDs. We would rule the musical world. I mean, when you put those parts next to musical notes are not like physical objects in which one physical object cannot occupy the same space as another physical object at the same time. It's not possible. The law of the fixed nature of objects kicks in and one of the two has to completely yield for the harder of the two objects. But musical notes are not this way. Musical notes can fill up a room without dispossessing anything else that is in the room. And when you add another note to the musical note, the one note holds on to its integrity without yielding fully to the other. As Peter Leithart says, it proudly occupies the space that it has while at the same time yields to the other note. And as it does, you heard it, there's harmony. What if this is how Christ possesses people? What if he takes his person, or if you will, his personality, and he infuses that personality into whatever personality we have when he possesses us? So that it is hard to know where one note stops and the other note begins. Because what they form together is seamless. Now, if this feels to some of you like a little too ambitious for your theological taste, consider that most of what the church believes is sacred is in very much the same fashion, starting with Jesus Christ. Is he Man, or is he God? Which note is he? We, we, I mean, you just go, yes. How does someone who is asleep in a boat one minute and therefore subject to the laws of nature, a moment later, step up to the stern of the boat and calm the seas? 
and therefore rules nature. You can't have it both ways. You can't be subject to the laws of nature while you rule the laws of nature. Can you? (laughs) This is why the disciples were saying, who is this man? That is not a theological question. They're not saying, let's figure this out. That's an existential question. Who is he? The scriptures are very much this way. We know or believe that the scriptures come to us as holy writ. Peter says, holy men, prophets, wrote as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And yet at the same time, we can tell you the historical context for everything those men wrote. We know this. And yet somehow what those men wrote is elevated beyond the words of a newspaper or an op-ed. They have somehow taken on a life of their own so that when they are heard at any place in the world, in any context, it's as if they are a power all their own. So is the scripture the word of God or is it the word of a mortal? Yes. It's a consonant blend. So it is hard to know where one stops and the other begins. The church is this way. Is it the body of Christ or is it an organization of people? Yes, it is hard to know where one stops and the other begins. The blessed sacrament is this way. Is it really the flesh and blood of Christ in some sense? Or is it just bread and grape juice? Yes, because it is hard to know where one stops and the other begins. What if this is how God possesses people? He does not move in and shove the other out. He comes alongside with his full personality so that he is capable of filling up a soul without displacing the person who is in that soul. (laughs) Exhale. Because some of us don't like our personalities. Let's be honest. There are things about your personality that you're not that fond of. If you really can't think of one, ask the person next to you. Bet they know. (laughs) And, you know, do you find yourself saying, gosh, I wish I didn't have that. What if you started thinking about being spirit-possessed as God's spirit blending himself with your spirit so that whatever that is becomes a strength for you. Wow. When we were um, uh, in staff some time ago, we did this Myers-Briggs personality assessment where you find out what your personality, you know what this is, right? As I said before, apparently there wasn't enough to do that week, and so we did that. And uh, everybody got initials. 
you know, what their personality is. Four letters, and each letter stood for some dominant personality trait. And then <laughs> some of the staff, uh, I say some, not all, um, uh, they actually put a poster on their office door where they had their, their assessment on the door with traits right next to it. So when you went into their office, it was like a warning. This was the personality that you were about to deal with. I mean, if you wanted something, remember, look at the sign, baby. You know how to play them now because you've figured out that personality. We have been so taken over by personality studies in the last about 30, 40 years right now that when I'm speaking, that's what you're thinking. Listen, the object is not simply to discover your personality. The object is to have it transformed by the Holy Spirit. The object is not to find out why we do something so we can continue to do it in the name of some personality trait. The object is to have the Holy Spirit blend with that trait so it becomes fully alive. So if you're sitting there thinking to yourself, oh no, if you tell me I got to be more loving like Jesus, I'm an introvert. I'm not even sure I like people. We're not saying that you're suddenly going to become this outgoing. No. What if the Holy Spirit got hold of your introversion? And so those things you don't like about yourself were transformed. So by the time he was done, you wouldn't give them away. You would hold your ground proudly while at the same time humbly yielding to the character of God that occupies the same space that you occupy at the same time. What then is the personality of God. I'm reading in John chapter 14. And I start finding characteristics of God. I want to put a few on the screen. One is, listen to the language, peace. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give as the world gives. So do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. I found joy. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Later in chapter 16, he says, I tell you the truth, you'll weep and mourn while the world rejoices. I guess that would be now. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. Behold, now is your time of grief, but I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. And when he was praying to the Father, he said, Father, I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I'm still in the world so that they may have the full 
measure of my joy within them. Wow. I found love. As the Father has loved me, I loved you. So remain in my love. Just as I remain in his love. And love each other as I've loved you. This is my command. Love each other. All three of these things belong to Jesus. They do not belong to us. He says, my peace I give to you. He does not say, find peace. He said, I have said these things so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. He did not say, be joyful. And he said, remain in my love, just as I remain in his love. Therefore, friends, love one another. He does not say, find a way to love one another, because we can't. We can't have these things, any of them. We can only create artificial substitutes until he gives us his joy. So this is not about us sitting here right now conjuring up ways to act more joyful and loving and peaceful when we are not by nature these things. This is more about cooperating with the work of God in any moment of the day so that his joy, peace, or love is able to happen there. Let me be more specific. All of this has me wondering how much of our personalities are shaped not by opening ourselves up to the work of God, but rather by resisting something or some person that we don't like. So we step into a situation and there is a lot of stress or there is a lot of pressure. There is high risk. There is something to fear. There is a feeling of shame. And the way that we respond to that is to shut ourselves down to these things and to seal ourselves off. And we start developing all these clever ways of doing it so that over time what our personality becomes is a hardening of dispositions that we developed shutting down. What if we opened up? What if we could go into a situation of high stress or high risk and we said to ourselves, there is somewhere in this situation room for the peace of God. Every time he mentions peace, he says it in the context of conflict. I noticed that this week. In the world, you will have trouble. I'm going to tell you straight up, but I've said these things so you could have my peace. So either it's true or it is not. And if it is true, we must start to think differently. We must step into the same situations that we're all going into tomorrow and ask ourselves, how do I cooperate 
with the love of God here. Some of us are so driven by shame our whole lives. We feel undesirable or uninteresting. And so we spend our whole lives shutting down to shame, trying to pull other people into our lives, which only makes people resist us more. And when they resist us, it just reinforces what we already thought. See, I told you I'm uninteresting and I'm undesirable. And so every time we lust and every time we flirt, every time we jump into a relationship, every time we won't let go of a relationship, I wonder... Are we cooperating with the love of God or are we shutting down shame by some other method? I wonder how often we are driven by hurt and by loss. Things should not have happened, but they did happen and we get stuck there. We can't move on. And so we reach out for some kind of pleasure which soon after becomes an addiction because not because we are open to new things but because we are afraid of the loss and the hurt. And so by shutting down, we have become what we become. And people will say about us sometimes, nah, that's just his personality. That is not his personality. Not when he is possessed by the Holy Spirit. No. When he is possessed by the Holy Spirit, he opens himself up so the love of God and the joy of God can come through him. Yeah, some of us are so busy trying to control the world. We control people, we control things, and anything that we can't control, we withdraw from. And oddly enough, all of this leaves us feeling out of control. We are overwhelmed. Why is this? Because we shut down, don't we? It's what we're afraid of. It isn't what we're open to. This morning, I want you to put a finger on that. I want you to ask yourself, how much of what I have become has come out of a desire for love, or joy, or peace? And I couldn't find it. And so I found a hundred ways of not getting hurt by it. And I'd like you to identify that. Now, this isn't a transaction, church. You won't come, confess it, walk out with an infant. But it starts by acknowledging what it is.